All right, so welcome. Now, for those of you who have been here, you know that we have been walking through a series called, what's it called? Foolish. Why is it called Foolish? Who said Foolish? Was it Nathan or Dylan? And Okay, nice, and Drew. So, why Foolish? Nice. That's a great application, actually. Did you guys all hear that? I don't know if you did. But uh, absolutely. So there's actually a lot of different ways you could take this. Um, we took it from a passage in 1 Corinthians where the gospel is described as being foolish. The gospel is foolish because it's, it's just so ridiculous sounding to the world. And that's by intention, by God's intention. He made the way of salvation seem foolish, okay? But we've been going through the gospel and um, talking about why we should preach the gospel to other people. We talked about why we share the gospel with one another uh, and, uh, excuse me, why we preach the gospel with one another, but also why we preach the gospel to ourselves. That was another week we spent. And then last week we really talked about how to share the gospel and perhaps some, some tools in our toolbox for sharing the gospel with this culture in particular, and the culture that you find yourselves in. Uh, today might feel like a little bit of a left turn, um, but I want to, well, I'll just come out and say it. I want to talk about hell tonight, okay? Um, I want to talk about why hell is essential to the gospel. I don't really feel like talking about hell <laughs> tonight, but I feel compelled to talk about hell. Um, I spent some time in January studying hell uh, to speak in another context, and it was extremely impactful. It was extremely difficult, too. And uh, the fact is that hell is an essential component of the gospel. And for that reason, like any component of the gospel, we need to know it really well. And yet, we, we somewhat flinch away from it. And maybe there's, there's reasons for that. Um, but I believe it's incredibly important that we understand it. Uh, so why is hell essential to the gospel is the question. I want to start with this little um, book called Jefferson's Bible. How many of you have heard of Jefferson's Bible? Okay, several of you. So Jefferson's Bible is, as it, as it looks, uh, Thomas Jefferson, I believe he was the third president of the United States. He was a brilliant man, and yet he had trouble with the Bible. He did not like all of the miracles of Jesus. So what he did is he went through and he took essentially the pieces of Jesus that he liked as a moral teacher, and he cut them out of the Bible and he pasted them into another document, um, which he leather bound and it kind of looked like a Bible, and it was, it was his Bible, okay? So he decided, I don't like half of the things in the Bible, so I'm going to take the things I do like and I do agree with, and the things that seem normal to me, the, thing, the things that don't seem foolish and the things that actually seem to, to make sense to my life, and I'm just going to take those things and appropriate them to, to my life. Uh, hell is one of the things that I think if people could cut out of the Bible first, they would. I personally have struggled with, with the doctrine of hell uh, significantly. In fact, that's one of the reasons I decided to teach on it, because I thought I, I need to understand this better. I, I need to study this and understand why is it that God has ordained this thing in hell. And is it, is it true? Is this actually in Scripture? Well, the question I want you to be asking yourself tonight is, are you really submitting yourself to God's Word? Do you truly submit to it? Hell is one of those doctrines that will test that. If you say you do, and then you read some of these things and you say, ah, I don't know about that part of it because, fill in the blank, that's going to test whether you value your wisdom above God's wisdom. I, I really believe that without the doctrine of hell, the gospel ceases to make sense. It's like white ink on white paper 
or black ink on black paper, okay? We, we have to have hell in order for the gospel to make any sense. Otherwise, the gospel is a lifeboat in the middle of a desert. It doesn't make any sense. It's not useful. We don't need it. But we do need it because hell is real. Um, and that's what we're going to talk about. So there's a couple um, perspectives, I think, that talking about hell will, will help us with. Um, number one, uh, it's going to force us to wrestle with the holiness of God. When, when we talk about the holiness of God, often we think of God's purity, perhaps, right? His absolute, uh, well, he doesn't have any sin in him, right? His absolute purity in that sense. And that's true. But when I say the holiness of God, there's actually a bigger concept here. The holiness of God refers to God's otherness. The word holy actually comes from the, the word separated or cut, actually. It's, it's as if you were to cut something off and separate it for a special purpose. And that's the word holy that's, that, that is applied to God. And God is holy, holy, holy. And in some sense, I think a good word for that is actually other, other, other. He is above. Another word for that would be transcendent. He is different than us. And he is infinitely above us. His thoughts are not our thoughts. His ways are not our ways. And when we confront the reality of of hell, we see that God transcends us. And especially if we struggle and wrestle to understand, then we are wrestling with the holiness of God. Does he have the right to, to say these things? Does he have the right to punish? So we wrestle with the holiness of God. We also wrestle and are confronted with the sinfulness of sin, in particular the sinfulness of our own sin. Because if it comes down to it, we feel like hell is an unjust punishment because we feel that we ourselves don't deserve it. And so talking about it and thinking about it actually forces us to confront yourself. It it makes you look in the mirror and say, am I seeing myself accurately? And lastly, gives us perspective on the lostness of the lost, what it means to be without Jesus. And we need to understand that for ourselves and, and for those around us. I don't know if you're familiar with Jonathan Edwards. He was uh, one of the most godly men I think I've ever read about. I wish I could have met him. He, uh, one of the most famous publications by him is his resolutions. And if you just read through them, he just resolved in so many, in really every area he could think of in his life to glorify God. And it was Jonathan Edwards that preached that famous sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God where he describes the lost, those who are without Christ, as essentially dangling over the pit of hell by the thinnest strand, like a spiderweb strand. And at any moment, God could choose to cut that strand and and let them fall to their just judgment. And so he described in this vivid detail, and he felt the reality of that. And the reason he did that was not to to compel people and to, and to make them afraid so that they would run to God. He, he simply wanted people to understand the reality. He simply wanted to faithfully proclaim the truth of Scripture. And so he wasn't going to flinch away from that. And so he said, how, how can I make this vividly apparent? How can I faithfully proclaim what God has said? And so when we look at hell with an honest look, we are confronted with how, what it means to be without Christ. And so we, we should look. Uh, but I will say it's going to be a little bit heavy. Not a little bit. It should be a little bit heavy. Because we're not just talking about some abstract idea. We're talking about real people. Um, we're talking about real people in your lives. Um, I'm talking about my own siblings, my brothers and sisters uh, by blood. And uh, I'm sure that you can think of people that you know and you love that should they not put their faith in Jesus, we're talking about what awaits them. So that I don't want to take lightly, and I don't want to uh, 
well, exactly that. I don't want to take it lightly. So, you guys ready? <laughs> okay. Um, so I want you to, to go to 2 Thessalonians, okay? Uh, and as you, as you go there, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, this is, this is essentially my, my thesis, okay? This is what it describes um, as God's judgment. What is hell? Hell is eternal, painful, just separation from God. And we're going to walk through just each of those points. So hell is eternal, painful, just separation from God. Before I keep going, I'm just going to pray real quick. Because of the, the gravity of this subject, and I, I need the Lord's help. So would you pray with me and, and for me? Um, Heavenly Father, I, I'm honored to have the opportunity to proclaim your word. And I cannot do it faithfully without your Holy Spirit. And likewise, Lord, your Holy Spirit is the one that will uh, bring the truth of your word to the hearts of those that are here uh, for conviction of sin and, and for um, conviction of, of what we should do, Lord, in response to these words. So I pray that you'd give me accuracy in my speech uh, and, and grace, and, uh, and give grace to all those here, Lord. Um, that we would hear these words uh, from you. And we pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right. Second Thessalonians 1. You guys there? In this book, uh, the Apostle Paul is writing to a group of Christians in this city, Thessalonica. You guys want to try and say it? Say Thessalonica. Thank you. I say it again. Is that how they say it today? Thessaloniki today. Okay. If you want to say it that way, you can. <laughs> Thessaloniki. Okay. So, um, in this city, Paul is writing to them. This is now his second letter to them to encourage them. They are experiencing persecution for their faith. Okay. Um, we know that probably included the plundering of their property, um, them being arrested and in certain cases, them being killed, okay, for their faith. This is happening at this point um, as the gospel is going forward, and as more people are becoming saved in these cities, there's a lot of animosity toward Christians, and, and in particular, toward this group of Christians. So Paul is actually writing to encourage them, and his encouragement is this. God is just. Oftentimes, we look around the world, and we say, why why, why, why is there so much evil? It's called the problem of evil because there's so much evil and oftentimes people will say, well, is there a God if there's this much evil? And the, the Christian's answer to that is yes, there is a God. Yes, he has allowed evil, but God is, is just. And so justice will eventually come to pass. So Paul is saying that God is just and in particular, God is going to accomplish justice for those that are mistreating you, that are persecuting these, these believers. So let's read um, verses 6 through 8. Actually, I'm going to start at verse 5 because it'll make more sense. So this is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, for which you are also suffering. Since indeed... God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. So he's saying Jesus will come back, and when he does, he will accomplish justice. So now we're going to move to verse 9. And now here, Paul begins to describe this judgment. What is this judgment that Jesus is going to bring when he returns on those who do not know him? And when we look at just kind of the rest of Scripture, we can safely say he's describing hell. He's describing this judgment. And it's Jesus who actually gave it, gives us the term hell. 
Um, so Paul doesn't use that term here, um, but what he describes um, aligns with what Jesus described in detail. So um, first of all, in our definition is, what is hell? It's eternal. Um, this might be one of the most difficult aspects of hell to accept. Uh, but let's read verse 9. They, that is those who do not know God or obey the gospel, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. So we see they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction. A really helpful cross-reference here is Matthew uh, chapter 25, verse 46. So this is not the only place where it talks about um, God's judgment on sin. Actually, the person who talked about it the most was Jesus himself. He talked about judgment all the time. Uh, and in particular, he talked about, about hell, and he warned people. Uh, because he cared about them, he was constantly warning them and saying, "Watch, look out, there is judgment coming. God is just. And in particular, this, this comes in the context of the sheep and the goats judgment where um, Jesus is separating out the sheep, that is believers, from the goats, the unbelievers. And this is what he says about the goats. He says these, those who, who claimed to have cared for, for Jesus, as in for believers, they claim to know Jesus. Uh, Jesus says to them, I never knew you. And these, the goats, will go away into eternal punishment but the righteous into eternal life. So here's what we have to face. Eternal, that word eternal, is the same here as it is here. And it's even the same subject, right? Eternal punishment. And here in 2 Thessalonians, we have eternal destruction. And it's parallel with eternal life. So in the same way that we talk about eternal life being never-ending, and there's good biblical support for that, there's also good biblical support for a hell being never-ending eternal. Eternal punishment here and described as, by Paul as eternal destruction. Um, some people will, uh, well, understandably take issue with this and say, well, what about destruction? Can't we look at destruction and say it's not going to last forever? I mean, how can you have um, eternal destruction? Well, uh, this, by the way, this view is called annihilationism, and it's more and more common in the church, uh, where, where people will take this view because it seems more, more palatable to us. Um, I think probably many of you could resonate with the idea, like, how is it that we, de we deserve an eternal punishment? Like, I, I did, you know, one bad thing, or, or two bad things, or perhaps an entire lifetime of horrible things. But even so, eternal. Like, if you think about the idea of eternity, how is that just? And so they'll say, okay, well, maybe God actually just ends it eventually. This view is called annihilationism. Um, and it kind of creates a, a kinder hell in our, in our minds. Um, the problem is that the, the word here um, doesn't mean the, the ceasing, cessation of existence, um, but destruction actually, uh, there's actually a helpful quote here. It describes something which has lost the essence of its nature or function, like a land that has lost its fruitfulness, ointment that's poured out wastefully, or broken wineskins. We were created to glorify God, and we were created to serve and love him. And so destruction, I think, probably best describes a person who has um, eternally turned away from God and, and does not want to serve him and love him as, as God is worthy of. And so uh, we should take eternal to mean eternal. All right. This is so heavy. <laughs> I'm sorry, y'all. I'm not sorry. I shouldn't say I'm sorry. Um, because this is the, the word of the Lord. Um, so the next one is painful. Uh, hell is painful. Um, if we look here, actually, first in uh, verse, back to verse 6, God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you. The, that word affliction kind of refers to that, to the fact that it's painful. Um, there's something about hell which is actually described in the Bible again and again as extremely painful. Um, For example, in, in Luke 16, uh, the context there is, is Jesus is describing the rich man and Lazarus. It's this parable of one man who uh, is, a, is a poor man on earth, but a believer, and he goes to heaven, and a rich man who mi horribly mistreats the poor man on this earth, and he's rich, 
but he also dies, and then he goes um, to what I think we can understand to be hell. But he is in torment, and the words used for that is torment and anguish in the flame. And he's conscious there. He's conscious of it, but he's in pain. Uh, similarly, in, uh, in Matthew 13, Jesus, this is again Jesus, he describes judgment as a fiery furnace. And again, not seeming to refer to some kind of annihilation of a furnace, but rather um, a consciousness in there because he says there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. And this is something that he says again and again if you read the Gospels. There's weeping and there's gnashing of teeth. Um, these images, some people will say, well, maybe these images are just um, not literal, but more metaphorical. What if it's more of like a mental anguish that's going on with these images? And the, I think the best answer to that is that that could be, actually. Uh, however, there's a purpose behind Jesus saying things like this. He didn't say it for us to find a way to disregard it and to dismiss it. Uh, Jesus said these things so that we would feel what we're feeling right this moment, saying, and, and in some sense, recoiling in horror. And we're saying, that sounds awful. That sounds horrible. That's why he said it the way he did. And so trying to wriggle out of it and say, well, maybe it's just mental anguish. Um, if it's mental anguish, I don't want to experience that either. Because <laughs> it's got to be far worse, perhaps, than the, than the physical image that's being used here. Um, and so I think we should take this to be that, um, that hell is painful. Um, again, Jonathan Edwards, uh, he wrote, Consider and we're all, we are considering it, consider how dreadful it will be to suffer such an extremity forever. It is dreadful beyond expression to suffer it half an hour. Oh, the misery, the tribulation, and anguish that is endured. I think I actually have that on the slide. But um, He's right, if you, if you actually consider it. So hell is eternal, and it's, and it's painful. <laughs> but then we get to this. Hell is just. If we go back to verse 6 again, since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you. Uh, in another place, God says, vengeance is mine, I will repay in this case, vengeance isn't the same as revenge. Because vengeance on a, on a human level, while God, God makes explicit, we are not to take vengeance. We are not to take revenge for those that wrong us because we are sinful and because we are so prone to doing it wrong. But in this case, God says, no, I am a just God, and that is why you leave vengeance to me. Vengeance is mine, but I will repay and again, that's repeated in the Old Testament and then quoted in the New Testament in several places. Vengeance is mine. Um, and again, when we get to verse 9, it says, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction. That punishment literally means to pay the penalty, okay? There is a real penalty for sin. And hell is the penalty that is paid. Now, I'm going to say something that sounds, it's going to sound very odd, but I, I hope it makes makes this come to light. In this sense, hell is good. Hell is good. Because hell is God's way of making justice. There are so many cries for, for justice, and this is actually God's righteous justice. Now, it's very hard for us to comprehend that, the culture likes to kind of portray hell as uh, like, like Satan's playground, kind of. Like Satan is in control of hell, and, uh, and therefore they do whatever they want, and then, uh, I don't know. But, but it's Satan's territory. Um, but that's actually not true. Hell is not evil. Hell is righteous. Hell is God's righteous judgment on evil. And so, rather than us recoiling at hell, if we were as holy as as God is, then we would recoil at the thought of sin going unpunished and of God's righteousness not being vindicated. 
That's what would make us recoil. And that's what makes God recoil. And so he says, I must punish sin. I must. I'm righteous. I'm holy. I'm going to catch these up. So hell is not evil. It's actually good because it's where God punishes evil and it's where God accomplishes justice. So uh, I'm aware that this idea is, is somewhat offensive to us. How could this be just? How can hell be just? Um, and it's very easy for us to quickly turn to God and say, God, this is not just. You are not just. This is not fair. You're wrong. And and I'm saying this because I, I have been there and I continue to wrestle with this because it's difficult for me to understand how this can be true. I would much prefer from my limited wisdom to say that those who are punished in hell have a, a limited time and God simply annihilates, eliminates them and they just cease to exist. I would much prefer that. Uh, but, but, that is not what it says. And so we can, we can look at this and say one of two things. One, God is unjust. Or two, we've underestimated sin. And I believe that two is what we must go to. <laughs> because it's not as if we misunderstand God here. It's not as if God has stuttered. <laughs> he said it as plainly as he can. And so our, while I encourage you to wrestle with the truth, uh, you must, we must first accept, okay, this is what it says. It's not as if I'm not understanding what the words say. I'm, a, I'm struggling to understand why the words say that. And so we have to, to recognize that uh, we have actually underestimated sin, okay? So I want to give you a little, a little parable, perhaps to help you understand at least how I see this. Pretend that you had a, a really good friend who was arrested for murder, okay? Now, as far as you were concerned, they were a good person, all right? But they were arrested for murder, and there's a trial that goes on for a couple of months, and you hear about it, and you know that, you know, evidence was brought, and, and lawyers, uh, you know, made their cases, and, and then you hear that there's going to be a final verdict, and so you, you actually decide, you know what, I, I do like my friend, I'm going to go and just hear what this final verdict is, okay? So you walk in, you sit down in the back, and you hear the final verdict, and your friend is sentenced to death. At that moment, you could stand up and say, this is unjust. I know that guy, that girl. They're innocent. There's no way they did it, okay? But the fact is, you missed all of the evidence brought. You did not see, truly, the evidence against this person. And so you're coming in with a judgment that is based on just a feeling, essentially. We do that with our own sin. We do that with ourselves. We, we say, I cannot be as sinful as, as God makes me out to be, apparently. But the reality is, we do not judge ourselves with an unbiased judgment. It's very difficult for us to understand our own sin. And I believe that hell, in a sense, is God's, well, God can use it to teach us uh, truly how we should see ourselves and how we should understand our sin and how serious our sin is. Hell can teach us that. So I, I believe that the scripture teaches that, that hell is just. Uh, and finally, hell is separation from God. We see that again in verse 9. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. There's a place in Scripture that describes us being separated from our sin. It's a promise of God's forgiveness. And it says, As far as the east is from the west, so has he removed our transgressions from us. And I, it occurred to me, when we think about separation from God, that this is the separation that separates us from God without Jesus' sacrifice. As far as the east is the west, this is how far God must remove sin from himself and therefore remove sinners from himself. 
if you can just, uh, it's, it's difficult to fathom a place where God is entirely absent. This world is not such a place. God's mercy and grace covers the earth. The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord in, in so many ways. He gives rain on the evil and on the good. His grace is just profuse. But hell is, is not so. Hell is, is separation from God. Oftentimes we object to the fact that, that hell is eternal and painful. And this part we're like, well, okay, uh, that doesn't sound so bad. But I, I think this is actually the most gut-wrenching aspect of hell, if we're honest. Um, I was uh, coming out of an ultrasound for our, our second baby daughter. <laughs> At the time, I didn't know it was a daughter. Uh, it was just our very first ultrasound. They were only like five weeks old. And I remember just walking out and driving away, and I just thought to myself, you know, I'm so excited to meet this little, like, person. And this thought occurred to me, the thing I'm most excited about is for them to get to know God. That's the best part of life. But if, can you imagine a person separated from even that opportunity to know God? If you've tasted and seen how good the Lord is, can you imagine to no longer taste that and to feel his absence? So hell is, I believe, taught to be here, eternal, painful, just separation from God. And again, in the the beginning, I, I, I said, it's essential to the gospel for a few reasons. One, it teaches us about the holiness of God. And it teaches us about our sinfulness, and it teaches us about the true plight of the lost. How lost does it mean to be lost? And there's one more uh, vitally important implication from this. Why I, why I believe I should, I should mention hell in, in, the, in the context of preaching an entire semester on the gospel. And that is um, <laughs> the glory of the cross. I want you to consider what hell means about what Jesus did on the cross. Hell measures the price of our redemption. And I want to explain what I mean by that. Um, You maybe have heard that Jesus, on the cross, died for your sins. And in some sense, his death paid a penalty for your sin. But I would argue that it wasn't simply him, it wasn't just that he had to die and then sin was paid for. Uh, Rather, he bore God's wrath on the cross. So it was not the physical death, I believe, that when he said, Lord, please let this cup pass from me, when he was sweating blood as he contemplated what was about to happen to him, it was not just the, the, the whipping almost to death or the being crucified on a cross, but rather it seems that what he was thinking of when he said, let this cup pass from me. He's talking about the cup of God's judgment. He knew what it meant to be punished for sin. And he knew how serious that was. Isaiah 53 says, on him has been laid the iniquity of us all. There's this quote by John Piper, I think, that that captures this. Um, how does God help us weigh the price of our redemption? He does so by ordaining hell. It would be unspeakably magnificent that three hours on a cross could deliver one person from everlasting torments. If you think about that, pause right there. So Jesus, in three hours, bore the brunt of, of everlasting punishment for sin. Now, that would be unspeakably magnificent in his words, if that was just one person. But that's not it, right? That would be unspeakable suffering. If one person were saved from everlasting torments by three hours of agony of our Lord Jesus on the cross, and he did not save one person. He saved millions upon millions of people whose debt to God mounts up infinitely to the sky as hell bears clear witness. And therefore, What happened at Calvary is beyond all imagination. 
in its greatness, all imagination in its beauty, all imagination in its love. Hell is all about echoing faintly the glory of Calvary. What a Savior is echoed in the flames of hell. I find it um, comforting that there is no pain or judgment that God inflicts on someone that he himself did not experience to, to, to the millionth degree. It's not as if he, does, he, just, he just loves to, to cause pain and, 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 and gets pleasure out of that. No, he himself bore that very same judgment and that very same pain to a degree that, that, that we cannot fathom, frankly, on the cross. And so, and this is why I say I, I believe that hell is essential to understand the gospel. If we understand sin rightly, and we understand God's judgment rightly, which is portrayed in hell, then we appreciate the cross. And so I would just encourage you, uh, you now know where at least one passage is in Scripture that describes this in, uh, in frank, clear detail. I would encourage you to, when you are contemplating the gospel, as I'm encouraging you to do on a regular basis, consider this. Don't just push it out of your mind, but rather in prayer say, Lord, I want to consider this truth. And it might frighten you. It will certainly make you extremely uncomfortable. When I was going through a period of, of, of thinking about this, I, uh, I went on a lot of runs because <laughs> I was just, I was wrestling with God and I literally had to get it out somehow because I was like, God, how can this be? How can, my, how can this be the future of, of my siblings? How could, how could this be what I deserve? Like how, how does it seem so different from what I would naturally guess about myself? How can sin be this horrible? But going through that, I believe, is necessary to grapple with it because if you haven't grappled with it and then someone comes to you and asks, so what, what, about, what about hell? Do you really believe that? Um, as I said, I think it's the first thing that people would cut out of the Bible. And it's understandable why people struggle with it and, and are repelled by it. Uh, however, it's actually, I believe, a truth that can lead to the cross. That, that needs to be said and needs to be understood because it's true. Um, so, my prayer is that we would allow this truth to dominate us, that we would submit ourselves to God's word, that it would cause us to have really true humility would understand our sin, that it would cause us to tremble at God's holiness, that we would not come before him lightly anytime, whether it's in worship or prayer, uh, that we would rejoice in God's mercy, that we'd recognize the magnificence of the cross and of what he accomplished on, at the cross. All right, with all of that, um, I actually want just a little bit of time to field questions about hell that you guys have. No promises on whether I'll be able to give a really, really great answer. However, I believe a conversation about it can be really helpful. Um, because there's, yeah, there's a lot to think about. So, if there are any, I just want to give a minute to see if anyone has. Yes. Well, okay, he is there. Revelation teaches that Satan himself is punished in hell. But it's not as if he's in charge of hell. Yeah. So that's a good question. Thank you for clarifying that. He, uh, it, it, he's described, uh, the devil and, the, and the, the beast and the false prophet are, are all thrown into what's described in Revelation as the lake of fire. Uh, and that's the same place that's described as the second death for, for those who do not believe the gospel. That was a good question. Yeah. Um, if someone were to choose to follow Christ out of fear of 
That's a good question. Um, ultimately, being, being saved comes down to understanding the truth of the gospel and submitting yourself to Christ. Now, I think that fear could play a role in that. Um, in the sense that if any of us saw God, we would be terrified. We'd be absolutely terrified. Um, it's not as if uh, fear in itself is the opposite of the gospel or something like that. Um, but just being afraid of God and then saying something to save yourself from wrath doesn't mean that you necessarily understand the gospel, uh, that you understand uh, that God created you, that, that you have sinned and, and that you are deserving of righteous judgment, that Jesus came to pay that penalty for you, and that by submitting to his lordship, he takes all of your sin on himself and, and frees you. I, understanding that and then, and then gladly and freely submitting yourself to, to Christ, uh, that is, that's conversion, right? Um, so I thank you for bringing that up. I said, uh, I, don't think, I don't think hell, I don't think we should, we should ever use hell as a stick to, to get people into heaven. That's, uh, I don't think that hell is the, is the best thing to talk about with someone who does not know the gospel or believe in Jesus. Um, and that's not because I think we should put it under a basket and not talk about it, uh, but, but rather, uh, it seems as if the, the best, the reason that we should know this is so that we understand what's happening, so that we understand the gravity uh, just going on all around us. Like, what is the weight of each moment that we're living? It matters. There's eternal significance. Um, and still, we shouldn't shrink from from speaking the truth about hell. Um, that is a piece of the gospel. Um, but ultimately, what we preach, and if you were looking in the book of Acts, for example, um, what is preached is not, you're all going to hell. That is not what the apostles were saying. That's not what Jesus was saying. Uh, the gospel is, you are deserving of righteous judgment, but there is, a, there is a gift available to you. And so the cross is always presented. The, the invitation to the grace of God is always presented. And... Uh, and that's, that's, the, that's the message of the gospel. It is good news. So ultimately, hell is like a backdrop. It's, it's, the, it's the black paper that we can write the gospel on. Um, so it makes sense. That, yeah. Hope that helps. I'm, I'm loving the questions. More questions? So, yeah. Uh, so obviously it's part of fire revelation somewhere. And it ties in with uh, new heaven, uh, new earth stuff. Uh, time between beginning of time to final judgment. Is there is hell instant in between there, or does final judgment have to happen for those? Or what, okay. what does some of that stuff look like? That's a great question. I've been a little <laughs> so I think I think your question is: Does does hell begin? <laughs> I was going to ask the same. Again. Oh really? <laughs> <laughs> okay, yeah. So this is a whole other discussion, and then let me see if I can summarize it. And there's a couple different views on this. So, so the question is, okay, if there's such a thing as a final judgment at the end of time, and then people are thrown into the lake, lake of fire, okay? And then we, and we think of that as hell. Okay, what if someone now dies not knowing Jesus? Do they, how does that work temporally? That's kind of the question, right? Right, and same thing for like new heaven. Yeah. So there's a view that says, that, um, the, the Old Testament in particular describes a place called um, Sheol or Gehenna. Okay, Gehenna is the New Testament word that to, that's used to translate it. So Sheol, some people think of Sheol as essentially like a, a holding place before the final judgment. Okay, so it's still, uh, in fact, that, that parable about the, the rich man and Lazarus, some people would say it seems like this rich man who's in torment is actually in Sheol, uh, and it's this holding, holding place, and he's not even in the, the final lake of fire. Um, so, so basically, there's one view that says uh, there is there's essentially an uh, intermediate state, is the technical term for it, uh, in between. And then there's another view uh, that essentially says, well, the, oh, actually, there's another view that says soul sleep, which basically says everyone is, uh, they wouldn't comprehend the passage of time, but they are essentially asleep until that final judgment where they are raised and judged, and then, and then the judgment begins. Um, I, I tend toward thinking that there's such a thing as Sheol, um, kind of this intermediate, intermediate place, um, and that it's still described very similarly of, of judgment. Um, but I think another tenable option, um, well, 
Those are the main two I can think of right now. I know there's another one, so I, there's probably another really good one, but that's kind of the basics there. Can you say we'll fly to heaven? So actually, uh, yeah. So, <laughs> wow, these questions. Okay, so uh, would the same apply to heaven is the question. And yes. So again, going back to the parable of, of the rich man and Lazarus, some people would describe, uh, well, there it says that Lazarus died and went to Abraham's bosom. Okay, that's, that's what's described. Okay, so he literally goes up and hangs out with Abraham. Um, and so some people say, okay, again, in Sheol, there's actually kind of a division of places. So there's a, there's a Sheol of judgment, and then, but if you were righteous, uh, or rather you believed in God in your life, then you would go to a place of not judgment, but it's still a holding cell, and you're not actually in the presence of God um, directly. Um, I, don't, I don't love that because there's so much evidence that as soon as we die, we go to be with the Lord. Um, and even, uh, there's, there's various things, but like such as the, the transfiguration when Jesus is with um, Elijah and Moses, um, it seems that they have their glorified bodies. Or, or no, actually, I, I take that back. Um, they do have some kind of a body, but they, they have clearly been with, been with God. And, and, and it just seems like odd to say that they're still waiting to go to be with God until Jesus is raised from the dead. So the argument is actually that they would wait until Jesus was raised from the dead. And there's some passages that talk about him going and speaking to the souls in a certain place. And then he basically got all of those and went up and took them to heaven. So they'd be in heaven now. Um, sorry, that's, that was a rambly answer because there's a lot there. But essentially, yes, there's such a view. <laughs> But only until Jesus is resurrected. So now everyone kind of agrees that you're immediately in the presence of, of God. Which I believe is true. I can send you more stuff. If anyone's interested in that, you can ask me about Sheol stuff. Okay. Wade has talked about maybe doing a, a Heaven and Hell series. So maybe, maybe we'll, uh, we'll do a whole series on it eventually. But, okay, Nathan, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, uh, really, the, the, I mean, the primary thing, it, it just generally speaking in Scripture, it's clear that God has generally blessed pretty much all people. And, and again, the, the image used there is He sends rain on the just and the unjust. Okay. And so you can think in just temporal lives, um, most, if not all, people get to experience some degree of, of pleasure and goodness. And every good gift is from the Lord. So uh, even just having a good job or, or getting married or, or whatever it is, enjoying Mountain Dew, like these are like good things. <laughs> and the Lord actually wants to like shower goodness and give opportunity for repentance. Um, he does not will that any would perish, but which is all to come to repentance. And so he uses his goodness to, to show himself to the world and to the people on this earth. And I know that there's a lot of suffering on the, on the world too, or in the world, um, and we have to, to work that into it. It's not as if everyone only experiences the good, uh, but because of sin, our lives are marred by evil as well. Uh, and so both believers and unbelievers are going to experience that as well. Uh, however, uh, generally speaking, God, God is good. And, and we experience that. Whereas in hell, now I don't have specifics on exactly what that would look like, uh, but I believe that that uh, general grace would, would be removed. Um, yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, another good question. So is there, are there separate levels of punishment? Oftentimes people think of like uh, Dante's Inferno uh, with this, where, where he kind of goes down through different levels of hell, and it's really uh, strange, um, the different punishments that he sees. Uh, but I would actually say yes, that there are different levels of punishment in hell. Uh, and p one of the reasons for this is Jesus says things like, um, woe to you, he's, he's pronouncing woes on certain cities that he, he, he didn't, miracles right in front of their eyes and they refuse to believe and so he pronounces woes on them i think one of them is chorazin okay this city i say that right asher okay great i'm sorry i just, I just thought maybe what's that yeah 
So I'm, I'm sure it's an Americanized version of it. So Chorazin was a city that he preached to. And he says, woe to you, Chorazin. It will be more bearable in the day of judgment for Sodom and Gomorrah than for you. It will be more bearable in the day of judgment for Sodom and Gomorrah than for you. So it seems like he's saying your judgment will be more severe because you were given that much more of an opportunity to repent and still you hardened your heart and refused to believe. So, yeah, I, I, again, I think God is just. Uh, and that means that um, he's not going to punish all people exactly the same way. Now, I, yeah, I don't know that we should go to Dante's Inferno as our, our pictures for what that looks like, um, but, but God's just. So, yeah, that's a good question. Mm-hmm. Are they going to heaven or are they going to hell? Because it's something that I wrestle with. It's just like I've had conversations and I'm like, man, I, I don't know. And so, yeah. What does what the Bible say about that? I, I think Scripture is, is pretty clear that if you are knowledgeably and intentionally continuing in sin, then that is evidence that you have, you have not been saved, that you are uh, rejecting the grace of God. Um, but that has to be balanced with the fact that believers sin, too. And we can even struggle with the same sin um, and, con- and be repenting of it again and again. But there, but there is a difference between um, continuing in sin knowledgeably and intentionally, walking in sin, and stumbling again and again and repenting from the heart again and again. Um, and so to some degree, we can't tell. Uh, as, as human beings, we can never be absolutely sure about anyone, really, I think, but ourselves. <laughs> I believe that God does give us assurance and say, yes, like the Holy Spirit uh, works in our heart to, to give us assurance, and we can be confident in the grace of God, and we can say, yes, I have truly repented of my sin, and, and that gives us confidence. But when we're looking at someone else and the fruit of their life, um, it can be very difficult. But I think we can say, when we are when we're talking to someone, if this is one of our friends, I think we have, in fact, we have the responsibility to warn them um, and, and, and give clear scriptural evidence that, no, if you are um, continuing in, in this sin, continue to walk in sin, then, there's, then, then you haven't accepted Christ and, and your sin remains on you. Like, you're, you're going to pay the penalty for your sin. Um, for some reason, the, the, the verses are, are escaping me at the moment. Um, yeah. Thank you. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. There's also a reference in Romans um, where it says, I believe it says, be void of people that make brothers stumble in the name of, of God. Like basically saying like, if someone is using my name in vain and making people stumble, brothers stumble in a, in a wrong way, that be weary and be void of that person and keep your distance mm-hmm. because they're causing people to stumble. So I believe it's right. in Romans somewhere. Okay. That's really, those are all really good. Thank you. Um, first John is what I was thinking of too. Uh, and I, you can even go to first John one and, and two, but it goes over and over again, you know, um, I think the, that word practice is really vital actually. So thank you, Andrea. That's like perfect. Yeah. Um, it's the difference between sinning and, and practicing sin and continue. And again, walking in sin. So, but worth, worth a study for sure. Yeah. Other questions? Oh, sorry, yeah. Great, that's a great question. Um, I'm not sure I have an excellent answer for that. (laughs) Um, To some degree, I think our, our joy will be found primarily in, in seeing God in, in all of his holiness and his goodness and his righteousness vindicated in every way. And we'll realize that our lives and the lives of those we love ultimately point back and glorify God. And so that is the source of our, of our primary joy. And, and because of that, we, can, we, could, we could even witness hell and see in it not only suffering, but we see the, the grace and the glory of God. I know that might not satisfy you. <laughs> it's hard. It's a hard question. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's true that God will ultimately comfort us in that. Um, and, and again, I think that's a, good, that's a good reminder. It's not as if he himself will not be sorrowful over it, in a sense, too. And so for that reason, he is able to comfort us in that. Um, it's a good thought. Uh, I think I have one more question. Is there anybody? One more opportunity? Uh, if you, I mean, I hope that the questions keep coming. I think this is something worth thinking through and asking really good questions. And, and all of them are going to be difficult. And that's um, going to give us more reason to dig into Scripture and see what the Word of God says. And that's really good. So uh, let's, let's pray. I'm going to invite the band up. And, uh, and let's praise the Lord uh, before we go. So um, you guys can come, come on up. Heavenly Father, thank you for, um, for your Word. And Lord, we, we thank you even for those parts that are uh, incredibly difficult and that surpass our understanding. And Lord, when you actually contemplate them, they break our heart. They um, cause us to be confused and even to question your goodness. Uh, I pray that you yourself would, would bring light, shed light, Lord, uh, so that we can understand these things, so that we can explain them to others. Lord, we don't want to deceive ourselves with truths that we're comfortable with. We, we want to understand the truth. And your truth um, has been revealed. And, and, and you want us to know the truth. Uh, and your Holy Spirit will lead us into the truth. Lord, I pray for comfort, <laughs> even as was just said, for, for those here who are wrestling uh, with these realities with specific people in mind. Um, who they love. Uh, I pray, Lord, that especially for those who, uh, who have loved ones who are still alive, that, that these truths would serve as, as a healthy um, reality check 
um, about the urgency of the gospel, of the urgency of this message, Lord. Um, I pray that the truth of hell would also enlighten us into what, what you suffered on the cross for us. I pray that these truths would open our eyes to how much you truly do love us. Um, that you yourself would be willing to suffer this punishment on our behalf. That you yourself, you placed yourself in such a way that any who put their faith in you can be saved from this righteous judgment. So that God can be just and the justifier of us who deserve judgment. But because we're in Christ, Christ can take our punishment for us. And, and we can live and be raised to life with him. Lord, these truths are uh, bigger than us. And I pray that you would help us to understand. Um, help us to worship you in spirit and truth even now. Um, we pray that we would please you and glorify you with our lives, Lord. Uh, we pray this all in the name of Jesus. Amen.